Welcome to Olivia Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Lena. Thank you so much for listening from more than 50 different countries around the world. It's so amazing to think that you are listening to my show from so many different places all over the world. I'm so curious to know where you're listening from and what you think about the show. I've heard from many of you who reached out to ask me about my career path and why I decided to become a career coach after working as a corporate lawyer and an investment banker. I talked about this in the very first episode, which is titled Introducing Live Your Dream with Selena Lee, and also in the intro of the episode where I interviewed Dennis Hong. So if you haven't yet, please check them out. Of course, I've had my fair shares of transitions and struggles in my own career, and through this experience, I learned how important it is to do the work that is aligned with who you are. And this is the only way you can do work that will bring you joy and purpose. As a career coach, I now help people to find and do the work that they believe is meaningful and fulfilling. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching or to let me know what you think about the show, please send me a message on my website. It's selinalee.co, that is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E.co. I would love to hear from you and would be happy to answer any questions you may have. The coaching can be done in person if you're in New York City or on the phone if you are anywhere else in the world. In addition to one-on-one coaching, I also give talks and do workshops and seminars. So please send me an email if you're interested in working with me and I can also add you to my email list so you'll know when I visit your city. So in this episode, I talked to Harry Joe, the founder of the law firm Harry Joe LLC and Sakai Media. Harry not only founded and grew his law firm successfully, but also started a media company that has won four Emmy Awards and has millions of subscribers and billions of views on YouTube, and also distributed on Netflix, Amazon, and PBS stations nationwide. Sakai Media produces the Mother Goose Club, one of YouTube's most successful channels for children. It's hard enough to start one company, but Harry started and grew two companies successfully. What's really interesting about his journey is that none of it was actually planned. As you'll hear in the episode, it was actually a series of random incidents punctuated by things seriously not working out that pushed him into a complete different direction and led him to start both companies. This episode is a bit longer than usual because we needed to talk about his journey of starting two companies, but there's so much we can learn from his story, so I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. Hi, Harry. Hi, Selena. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Let's start with your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in uh, London, Canada. Uh, Immigrated to New York uh, when I was around two. Then I grew up in Queens, um, in Woodside, uh, primarily. I also spent some time living in uh, Ozone Park and Forest Hills. I heard your parents owned a candy store when you grew up. Um, When I was really little, we had a candy store. We had a a store in uh, the upper upper west side um like the low 100s in amsterdam in the in the early to mid 70s so it was kind of a rough neighborhood back then 
Um, and when I was at the store, I was surrounded by candy all the time. I couldn't eat any of it or touch it, <laughs> which made no sense to me. Oh, no. And we had no candy at home either. But at the store, we had tons of it. And I would get in trouble if I did anything to it. And it was just stacked up in these big piles, but I couldn't do anything but but look at it. Wow, that must have been really frustrating. It it was. It was uh it's it's pretty much the only thing I remember about that place. So did your parents like encourage you to pursue a certain profession when you grew up? Um my parents were very much focused on education and they wanted me to be a professional. There was no one uh, professional track that they promoted more than any other. Uh, like uh, I would say, like a lot of Korean parents, they wanted me to, you know, go to the best possible school. But when it came to the exact things that I should study, um, at that point, things kind of dropped off in terms of the level of detail. Um, you know, I think what really a lot of parents want for their kids is for their kids to be financially secure. That's right. But um, you don't quite get that message when you're being told to go to Harvard like every every single day. I feel like it was a lot worse like with you know the first generation of kids who grew up here where we didn't really ever like I didn't even meet anyone who graduated from a US university until I was almost in high school. Oh wow. Yeah. So like everyone I knew um if they'd gone to university Everyone I'd met, like all my parents' friends had gone to university in Korea, right? Right. So, um, and there weren't that many people that were that much older than I was. Uh, so it was really hard to even know what that was about. Um, and, you know, I mean, reading between the lines, you knew that your parents wanted you to do well. That's right. But you didn't know exactly what that meant, yeah. right? Um, you know, if you think about it, I was pretty sure that if I went, if I theoretically gone to Harvard and become an anthropologist and decided to live, you know, doing research in the jungle for 20 years, that probably <laughs> would not have been the plan. That's right. right? They, they probably, you know, uh, you know, they would have felt that I didn't get the message. But um, I, I think, um, especially now that I'm older, I, I can contextualize a lot better about what their true intentions were. And, you know, because a lot of people get really hung up and stressed out about, I mean, I certainly had a lot of educational stress growing up. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And you grew up in Queens, yep. which is predominantly immigrant community. How was that like for you? Um, it was a lot of fun. You know, we spent a lot of time outside uh, playing with the other kids in the neighborhood, completely unsupervised and getting into a lot of trouble and doing things that kids can, today can never do. Um, so I enjoyed that. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you see where especially with immigrant communities, um, you know, everyone's working so hard to make ends meet. Um, you know, when you have a small business and you're, you're really counting every cent and then the goal for the children is to escape from that lifestyle. Um, in very many ways, your lives are what I came to realize, uh, you know, as I grew older was, uh, our lives were really dominated by money, even though we didn't have any of it. Right? right and you um find that this pursuit of of money as a, as a way to kind of escape your circumstances as the sort of overarching direction of your life um you know it, it's just kind of a given and i would say it's 
in many ways much stronger of a given in, in the, under those circumstances. So, you know, the people who have money are the most obsessed with it, right? Right, right. Um, you know, thinking that it'll sort of solve all the problems. And one thing that, you know, I, I very much, of course, just assumed that that was the way that we needed to all live. Um, of course, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more perspective and I've certainly tried to share that with my children. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, the goal written you know, broadly of life is, you know, if you did manage to achieve the sort of, we'll call it, you know, the vision of having the suburban house or the specific type of lifestyle, et cetera, and you work towards a specific goal, you know, is the goal to have the stuff or is it really, is life really about other things? Is it about relationships? Is it about um, having a set of values and, and, and living in a certain way according to your faith, according to your ideas and, and, you know, what is your legacy? Is your legacy going to be, you know, stuff or is it going to be people, right? And I think, I think our parents are, understood all of those things, but given their circumstances, it was so hard to make ends meet. They really communicated a lot to us. I would say over-communicated a lot to us about the material side of things um, and took much of the, we'll call it metaphysical for granted. And, you know, in many ways, as, as I've grown up, I've come to learn how to reconnect with a lot of that. And, and as I'm teaching my children, I really try to focus on those those messages, um, because ultimately, I, you know, I believe that we all have souls, and 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 that's that's the sum total of who we are, not yeah. not what we have. So, how did that experience affect like how you lived your life, the professions that you decided to pursue, the things that you decided to do with your life? You know, so I wasn't a very good listener as a kid in many ways. So, I. I did what I had to do to feel like I met my parents' goals, but I never was completely committed. Um, you know, I was sort of this underachiever that tried to find the minimal amount of work that would allow me to continue to feel like I was on track, but at the same time, not having completely bought in to the whole vision, um, I wasn't totally applying myself. So I didn't really have a specific plan for the type of career I would have or the type of life I would lead um, in terms of occupation or um, you know what even how much money I wanted to make I just knew I wanted to in many ways I was focused when I was a kid on you know you, you sort of especially as a kid you rebel against a lot of the pressures that you're under and one of the things that I really focused in on was why can't I make certain decisions that other people can make, right? Yeah. You know, so going back to the whole anthropologist thing, right? Not that I wanted to actually go and do something like that, but it really bothered me that I knew that I wasn't supposed to. And so I toyed around for a while with um, a career possibly in, in academia. But um, as I matured, I really began to appreciate um, the sense of obligation um, that I would have, um, knowing where my parents were coming from, that I'd want to at least have some kind of career where I could provide some support financially to my family, not because I was supposed to, but because I could. And knowing that I had an opportunity to do that, if I didn't, I would regret it. And, and, and I wanted to. I wanted to do it because um, that was a good thing to do that would 
you know, be good for me and be good for my family. And so during the course of college, uh, that ultimately led me to, um, while I was figuring things out, uh, decide to go to law school, like yeah. many of us. You decided to study classics, but you told me that you were not really good in languages or you didn't like it very much. Yeah. So, so in college, so um, I had this whole plan where I was very, I, I had a very bad experience with Spanish in high school. So I decided to use, a com I decided to use Korean as my uh, language to, uh, to meet the language requirement. So I took Korean as a freshman and I met my language requirement. But um, I was required through the, um, I went to the University of Michigan, their, their core curriculum required me to take a certain number of classics courses in English, where I was introduced to, to uh, the field of classics. And I, it hadn't really occurred to me, especially growing up in, you know, in a Korean household, that I could spend co my college years you know, reading Latin and Greek and you know, you know, theorizing on Homer and, and, and Virgil. And, and that, really, that really appealed to me as the type of thing that really, if I was going to do college for real, that a person should do. So uh, I decided, you know, um, I'm here. I want to do this college thing for real. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me do this. And um, even though I felt like, you know, I was not very good in languages and I had already on that for that reason used Korean to meet my language requirement. Now suddenly um, I was confronted with the possibility of, you know, having to learn Latin and Greek um, and, and, and at a, to a level of mastery within three years. And, you know, that there seemed to be something kind of recklessly exciting and about the sort of jumping into that challenge, you know, like, who knows if I could pull it off, but if I, if I could, that would be very, that'd be great. And I would have had this experience that that's a once in a lifetime experience. So it's like you saw yourself as someone who's not good at languages. You hated languages in high school. And then you're like, oh, let me uh, study Latin and Greek. Yeah. You who know, like, that? <laughs> <laughs> so th there's something that just seems kind of outrageous about the challenge. You know, if, if, if it was like study Chinese or something like that, or, um, or study Spanish, you know, again, for, for practical purposes. Um, I don't know that I could have pulled it off or would have maintained interest, but there was something that appealed to me about the, the romance of doing that type of really classical study, literally, in, in, in college. And when I saw it from a, you know, looking at study from the perspective of, I'm, I'm going to do this to check a box or fulfill a particular uh, mission goal and then move on to another goal and 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 taking more of a work kind of aspect to it really made made studying not appealing to me but you know when i looked at it from the perspective of here i am i'm going to be working with this very small group of um very uh well-regarded professionals you know top of their field uh, we would develop a personal relationship and it'd be me and like five other people and and you know we're going to be working on these very exciting and, and intellectually stimulating challenges. Like that was a totally different, you know, type of experience. Right now, now we're not talking about work, but we're talking about you know dis intellectual discovery and, and and building relationships and 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 that was something I could get really excited about. So um, that whole element and that part of it made a lot of sense to me. 
and yeah, I, I've never done anything like this before. And based upon my past experience with languages, I probably wouldn't be able to pull it off. But I feel <laughs> like, you know, this experience is the kind of experience I that I, I I'd like to have and the type that I should have. And um, and these relationships are the types of relationships that I want to build up. So. So I, I I dived in. I you know I decided to take sort of a semester in Latin to to test it out, and it was challenging, but I loved it. So it sounds like um, the reason as to why you had to study a language was different when you're in high school, supposed to in college, and that's why you had a different attitude towards it. Absolutely, you know, yeah. like sometimes you go on vacation, and there's some tower in the middle of this medieval town that you ended up visiting. And you might not have even known that it was there, but now that you see it, uh, you feel like, you know, I since I'm here, I should climb up this thing. Yeah. Right. And maybe if you lived there, you would never have climbed up there. Right. And it would take like an hour, and you know, the staircase is very small. It's a hot day. But you know, m many of us in that type of scenario were like, look, you know, you only live once, and we're here, so let's do it, right? And uh, that's very much the attitude that I took um, towards jumping into classics. And you also majored in archaeology. Like, did anyone say like, what are you going to do with your life with those majors? You're right. Korean. <laughs> so, um, you know, definitely um, that did come up. Um, and I really loved archaeology. It was, uh, it provided a phenomenal education in terms of learning how to read the visual clues and, and, and communicate visually um, on a hist at a historical level. So, um, there was absolutely no plan that I had or could identify where I could use any of these um, skills in a pure career utility from a you know, utilitarian standpoint. But my view was I'm, I'm going to lean in this old education thing. If, I'm, if I can't really figure out or I'm not on a career-focused path and I'm trying to have fun with the whole intellectual side of it and maximizing my, my educational experience. And I'm going to really maximize it and um, pursue a field of study that really provides a phenomenal educational foundation, but I can truly enjoy, um, yeah. um, which I did. And so, um, yeah, so I, I traveled all around the Mediterranean, wow. going to all these like obscure sites that only archaeologists know about and got to see all these various obscure monuments that you don't normally ever visit and had a lot of fun with it. And then how did you decide to go to law school? So, you know, I very seriously considered staying with the classics um, as a career. But um, as I said earlier, as, as I was approaching um, the end of college, I got to a point where I... Uh, concluded that, you know, I want to, I want to get back. I want to, I, I have an opportunity to, to have a, a, a good professional career and, and make some money. And I want to do that. Um, not because I'm supposed to, or I have to, but because I can, and it's, it's not everyone who can. So since I have the opportunity, I know how valuable it is. And in my orbit, there really isn't anyone else that I know that that has that opportunity. I'll, I'll do it. And so, um, I decided to apply to law school, and I had a particular plan for either, you know, going down the law firm path or possibly the government path. 
Um, and I believed um, somewhat, um, not entirely correctly, that law degrees allow you to main to keep your options open, like so many of us. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you can any you know, with a law degree, you can do anything, and you can go anywhere. So I figured, all right, if I go to law school, I'll still be able to keep pursuing my passions in college, and um, and still have leave open the possibility of a wide range of professional careers. And you joined a law firm right after, right? Yep. Um, so I went to Davis Polk after law school, and I ultimately decided against going down the government path and decided to pursue um, a, a career in corporate law. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a lot of interest in business. So the 90s, when I came out of law school, I came out at the height of the first tech boom, um, dot-com boom, and everyone was thinking about starting up a business or joining a startup or doing something. And, you know, I was, since I had gone to law school and gotten the degree and, you know, I, I valued um, the big law firm opportunity, you know, I, I went on that track, but it was something that, um, the business side of it was something that I, I also was thinking about. So I figured, well, on the corporate side, um, let me let me try this out, and and I think this is going to be the path for me. I had also had a couple of experiences in law school because I originally thought I was going to work for the government, and and so I'd been pursuing a litigation path. And one thing about me is, um, it's hard for me to get uh, that interested in stuff that's not totally real. So. Um, I wasn't that particularly uh, engaged with a lot of the coursework. I mean, some of the coursework engaged me, but a lot of the coursework just really didn't engage me. But the opportunity to work on actual real cases, I thought, was something that was exciting and could directly inform my future career decisions. So I spent one of the great things about uh, my law school, um, as I went to Yale, was we had the capacity, and a lot of law schools do this now, but very few did in the 90s, where you, students could really choose their own path. And in my case, um, I very quickly settled on um, doing clinical work as my path for, in law school. So since I was thinking of possibly going into litigation, let me just spend the next three years really focusing on that. And I worked on a number of cases. Um, and I was intending to work for the government after law school. So I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in our system. Let me see what the other side is. Um, so I did a lot of prison work. So I did a lot of prison work and um, a lot of criminal defense work. I worked on um, four cases in law school, um, three at the appellate level, and, um, and actually argued several um, cases as well. And um, what I found about that work was as intellectually stimulating as it was, um, it was also um, very educational for me to really confront uh, the level of the stakes involved. With the cases that I was working on, I mean, these were pretty serious cases. So I visited pretty much every prison in Connecticut and some of the largest prisons in New York and met um, all kinds of people um, working on on various cases and you know when you're sitting across from someone um, and the consequences 
of your interaction relate to you know pretty meaningful life consequences for them um it quickly becomes you know not a theoretical exercise but a very substantial meaningful life exercise for, for certainly for them and then also for for you as the, as the attorney and um i found it really hard to leave a lot of that um to decompartmentalize um Uh, so that affected you personally. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, and, and there's a lot of gray. Yeah, of course. Right, there's a lot of gray. So, um, it, and I'm someone who really, like, I, I look for the gray in life and I like to study it. So, I, seeing all the gray and seeing how, how high stakes it was and, you know, as a, as a job, you know, I didn't want this to define me. So, I realized that this was not going to be the path that that I was going to follow. Like I, I wouldn't be able to just you know leave it behind at the office. Treat it as a job. Yeah, and um, it would absolutely affect me, you know, mentally, emotionally, um, and you know there are a lot of deep moral questions about the cases and our roles in the cases that don't have clear answers, and you know. Ultimately, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do commercial work, right? You know, like when one multi-billion dollar company is working some, a deal out with another mega company, <laughs> you know, that doesn't keep anybody up at night. So, right. yeah, there's no ethical moral issues that, mm. that are, uh, that, you know, may exist on anything remotely close to the scale of life and death and, you know, people's futures or the consequences of, you know, Of very serious crimes, so um, I decided, you know, let's 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 go into business and pursue a uh, something more on the commercial side that that will allow me to, you know, like leave work at work and my personal life and my personal life. And you were working at Davis Polk, and one day you got called for jury duty. Yes. So this was one of the key turning points in my life, and I would say that the. Um, All of us need to allow for a certain amount of, call it a combination of grace and fate and you know, the hand of God in directing where we ultimately go on our paths. And you know, we, really all, we can only have so much control. And I think a lot of the control that we think we have in our lives is something of an illusion. Um, this is very much one of those those scenarios. So I, I was called to jury duty at a time when the economy was um, going into uh, recession. So the firm was pretty slow. Um, a lot of my deals had been um, had gotten put on hold, and uh, so I was, I was. And jury lawyers were had just recently been at the time allowed to to sit on juries. And having done all that litigation, and I was I was called on to serve possibly on a criminal case, uh, I really wanted to get on a jury. So um, I spent almost two weeks trying to get on a, a trial. Wow. But I never got voir dire. Um, I would get sent to a courtroom. They would question all the other potential jurors and then dismiss us. Uh, and the way it works in jury duty is you get this card and they need to stamp the card in order for you to leave. Um, and you know they told us they were not going to stamp the cards unless we had served on a jury. So I held on to my card until one day 
um, one, um, we had been sent to a courtroom and uh, uh, juror questioning went on late and uh, the clerks felt bad for us. So they came down to our courtroom, um, which I had not seen previously. They said, listen, you guys have been here for a long time. I'm sorry this has been taking so long. Here, why don't you just, you know, give me your slips and I'll, I'll stamp them right now for you so you can all go home. Oh, no. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> now my, I have to go back to work. My initial, like, <laughs> impulse was to say, hey, now listen, you know, when we first got here, you said that we were not going to get dismissed until we served on a jury. But reading the room, I could tell that that wasn't going to go over very well. So I just quietly stood there and watched as he stamped my car and I had to go Aww. back to work. <clears throat> So um, I went back to work, and during the time that I was out, they had reassigned all my cases, um, all my deals. And it just so happened that that was a day when one of our clients asked for a secondi for someone to work on site uh, for about half a year to cover an attorney who was going on maternity leave. And I happened to be the only junior associate. Um, that had no active deals in the office on that particular day because that was the day I came back from jury duty. So when I got back to work, um, I was waiting to get an assignment and instead I got a call and it was from a, uh, a senior attorney at Morgan Stanley saying, welcome to Morgan Stanley. It's like, well, that's odd. You're like, so, I, what? Yeah, <laughs> so I called back and they were like, oh, oh, it seems like no one's told you, but you're going to be working here now. And, you know, do you know what a securities loan is that you're going to be working in securities lending? And have you ever heard of a short sale? And the answer was no. And, um, and so uh, she explained to me what a short sale was on, on that call. And that's how I learned what a short sale was. And she welcomed me to the firm. And so I asked, called around. They were like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, they need someone to help out over there. And we're sending you. This is a good thing. You know, you happen to not have anything going on. So, uh, so that's why we picked you. So nothing to worry about. You're like, did I get fired? Yeah, like, you know, was I, was I out away? too long? Like, you know, <laughs> like I thought like I thought it was okay to be on jury duty. Right. So, um, so I went over and, uh, and I ended up spending almost six months at Morning Stanley. And this was um, in mid-2001, uh, before 9-11. And... This is a time when hedge funds were just about to really break out as an asset class. And so if you Googled hedge fund, which I did when I first got this, this assignment, um, there was virtually no information um, that you could find about hedge funds. And people, they were not anyone's real radar screen. Um, but at the banks at that time, a lot of the product that they were innovating was to support hedge fund trading. And as the in-house lawyer, a lot of what I was do assigned to do was to figure out if you know, this new thing that the bank had never done before was, was okay from a legal perspective. Of course, I had not studied any of this type of regulation in law school, and I don't think anyone does. So you know, I opened up the rules, and I would kind of read a description of what they said. And they were what they wanted to do. And I'd read the rules and try to figure out if it was okay. And then I'd call around to some people to compare notes and then I'd make a call. And, um, and then the next thing they'd want after that is if the answer was yes, it was, you know, well, can you give me an agreement, a document to, that we can put in place with the customer? 
And of course, there was no document in place. So a lot of, so then we'd, we'd basically have to make something up. And, um, you know, for lawyers, we live very much in this precedent-driven environment of where, you know, you don't want to do anything you know, you're unsure if it's okay for you to change this thing if you're if it's handed down. Right. And um, pretty regularly, I was finding myself in a position where um, no one has ever done this, so we need to just literally make it up. And so, um, and which is what we did. So wow. I would take like the description that they gave me of what they wanted to do, and I type it out in a in the word processor, and then I'd copy and paste some paragraphs from other agreements that seemed to be somewhat similar and <laughs> and you know it seemed to kind of do what other agreements were looking to do but you know I'd never written a contract from scratch before you know you only I had only amended contracts that someone else had written so you know and then you'd reach out to outside counsel and um, I had assumed that all the outside big law firms were all-knowing and capable of doing everything and and then pretty quickly you find out that, well, since no one's ever done this before, they don't know any better than you do. And in fact, they're not going to take a position. So, you know, like it, the thing that you put together seems to be okay. Maybe you can add these couple of ideas. And so, you know, which and my first response to that was kind of like, seriously, like I, I thought you guys had all the answers, like what? Um, and, you know, but something's got to get done and, you know, the customer's waiting for something. So we would just put it out there. Wow. So you just like started making it up. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so when my my time in Morris Stanley was done, I was I was still uh, I was only a second year at the time. So I had an opportunity to go back to Davis, and uh, which I did. And but instead of continuing my rotations um, and you know doing say like tax or or M and A, which is which was next in the rotation cycle for me. I decided, you know what, like this, you know, I thought about it for a long time. And I, I had actually at that point decided that law was not the the way for me. Yeah, I, you were trying to get out I of it. I was trying to get out of law. I was yeah. like, you know, like, since I've decided to go all in on this, you know, corporate law thing, maybe I should just be on the business side and, mm -hmm. you know, be the client, right? Yeah. Like, instead of serving other people, like, you know, like, why not just be the boss and tell the lawyers what to do? So... I was in the process of thinking about business school and, or possibly going on to the business side and um, somewhere or changing careers or something. And um, this experience of Morgan Stanley resulted in me really asking myself, well, you know, I could be the 51st M&A associate um, or I could, you know, especially having been in-house, I knew that there wasn't really any expertise on the on the street in this space there were you know there was just a handful of guys who were just figuring it out so why don't i just be the first guy trying to figure this out rather than be the you know the 51st MA associate and and then if this doesn't work out then i could always go back and go back into the rotations and, and learn up that stuff and i wouldn't you know I, all i would have lost is like a year um, and so I went back to the firm and I had worked with a, a partner who had lateraled in from another firm. So he was something somewhat in somewhat of an unusual situation. He was very brilliant, a very capable lawyer, but didn't have his own particular, um, we'll call it associate base or base at, 
at Davis Polk because he had lateraled in from another firm. And I'd used him as my outside counsel. So even though I was a, rel- I was a junior associate, the relationship that we had developed was a partner-client relationship. And so even when I went back and I signed to, to work with him, and he was my boss now, and he was his partner associate, um, we had started off as um, outside counsel to client. Um, so we interacted on a more of a peer basis. And, um, and he was a very, very uh, open-minded, entrepreneurial type of person. Um, regulatory expert in a deal-driven firm. And he wanted to really have his own practice, uh, not just advise on other people's deals. So, um, you know, I started out working with him on a very the typical kind of partner associate dynamic where, you know, I just wait for you to say stuff and just do what you say and I don't say anything. And um, we had an interaction relatively early on where he was like, no, 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 you should just tell me what you think. And like, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build my up my practice. Like, you know, you were... That more recently, what do you think? So I was like, listen, well, honestly, like, I think we should, I can tell you right now, there's no one who's an expert in any of these products that the hedge funds are trading. Um, you know as much about it as anyone else. Um, I think what we should do is we should just call up every single bank and tell them that we know how to do this stuff and they'll give us business. And in those days, the big law firms never called around for work, it was just taboo. Right. Oh, wow, it's just really? not, yeah, you just, just like wait. not done, mm. you know, like it was, it was, you know, not, it was uncouth, right? You waited for them to call you. Because you're you, too cool to yeah, be calling yeah. them. I was like, listen, they would love it if, you know, people came in with expertise who could basically take care of these, these problems for them. So he was like, okay, well, let's do it then. So we, you know, we called around and, you know, Again, in those days, no one ever got calls from big law firms saying, "Hey, do you need help?" Like, right. you know, especially in areas that were new. So um, they were like, "Yes, please." So we ended up signing up um, a significant portion of the street um, very easily. And this uh, is you being an entrepreneur in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, my uh, and and at this point um, in the early two thousands was when the hedge funds started hiring in-house staff from banks, which was at that time somewhat controversial. And it was, you know, whoa, like you're going to leave a secure bank job to go work at a hedge fund. And, um, and so many of our contacts at the banks started working at hedge funds and we started signing them up as clients too. Um, and very quickly we built a very big practice. And so, um, I was then tasked with training up associates and um, because the economy was in recession, it was relatively easy to find people who are available to work with us. And so I reached out to a bunch of my friends and I was like, listen, like, you know, between us, you know, you're not planning to be here, you know, for the rest of your career. Right. But, you know, I, I've, you know, stumbled into the space and it's growing very rapidly. And if you become an expert in these products, I'm sure you can get an in-house job really quickly. And they were like, sign me up. So I put together this really um, all-star team. And 
um, trained them up in the products, uh, keeping in mind that at the time that I was doing that, I'd been doing this for six months to a year longer than they had, right? <laughs> um, but I expert, right? But I'd gotten to it first, right? And so, um, one of the things about lawyers is, so I I'm asked to do something, I make something up, and a year later, I start I see other people using the document that I had made, <laughs> but not knowing that I had made it, and then. Like from where they, from their perspective, it came down from the heavens, right? Like they, they wow. were afraid to touch like a, a paragraph of it, right? <laughs> you know, and sometimes, you know, when I was putting these things together, I would put in two clauses that sort of sounded the same, like, like they both covered something that we needed to cover in slightly different language. And I would just leave them both in because, you know, <laughs> just in case, yeah, just in case, right? And, um, and then I'd be talking to people about those clauses and, you know, from their perspective, there was like, like, we absolutely need both of these. Because <laughs> the, it was always there. Yeah, this is the reason why they're both here, right? But being, <laughs> but being the person who actually put that in there, like, I actually knew, like, when I put that in there, I, I wasn't exactly sure why. Right. Did you I, tell them that you made it up? No, no. So, um, but that was very informative for me. So You're like, these lawyers don't know what they're doing. Right. So I was like, you know, the thing about lawyers is that, they will absolutely respect precedent almost in an to an irrational degree. Right, right. Um, and if you, you know, if you go into a space a little earlier than everyone else, like your authority will be unchallenged forever. Right. Wow. Um, so, so that that further validated my kind of thought process around. All right, I'm going to do this. And you're trying to get out of the law because you had more interest in business and then you ended up starting your own firm. Like, how did that happen? Right. So, um, so I'd done all this entrepreneurial work at Davis to help establish that practice. Um, and the, the partner I worked for, you know, provided all the substantive supervision and, and, and judgment. Um, and I provided the, you know, I, I, I marketed the practice. I recruited the associates. I trained the associates. I invoiced the clients. I helped define the product that we were providing, and you know, maintained sort of quality control. So, um, I had that opportunity as a relatively junior associate at, at Davis to build up those business skills that you would need to to operate your own practice, um, which is. Very unusual at a big law firm. Oh yeah, and you know, ma really made sense to no one. Um, Only all because you had the jury duty, right? All because <laughs> I, I decided to to keep going to jury duty in, in an effort to to see what it was like um, being a juror and and not not counsel. You kind of fell into this practice, absolutely. Um, and so the we so our practice ended up not. Um, staying at Davis Polk um, for a number of reasons, we all ended up, including uh, my boss, we all ended up leaving. And so I, um, at that time, was thinking, well, you know, there's there's all these headwinds when you're working at a big law firm to building a, a business from scratch. You have no control over how you market the practice. I mean, I did because I was effectively unsupervised, right? Right. Um, but if you want to do it you know, for real, when you're at a big firm, you got to coordinate with the rest of the firm on marketing. You don't have the ability to define the product. 
You don't have the ability to price the product. Um, the product is being delivered by um, service professionals who you can't, you don't have control over hiring them and you don't often have control over how you train them, right? A lot of restrictions. Yeah, so like you, you're in this, this situation where you're supposed to deliver a product to clients, but you can't determine how it's being defined, who's giving it, how it's priced, and how the service providers are being recruited and trained. So I was like, I'm never joining a big law firm again. Um, so I went in-house. And um, they I had a great opportunity with a very entrepreneurial group of people who were really doing very well. Um, one of the most successful groups on Wall Street at the time. I was very excited about working with them and we were gonna take over the world. And I was thinking, you know, in a few years, these guys will be running this place. And what I didn't appreciate about banks and big companies at that time was that if everybody at the company thinks that you're going to be running this place, the guy who's currently running the company is going to get rid of you. Mm. So sure enough, um, our group was disbanded, the senior leadership uh, dismissed, oh, and wow. you know businesses started getting sold off one by one. Wow. Um, and you know, even though we were doing very well. And that was not a, a scenario that I had accounted for, right? Mm -hmm. I had assumed that if you're doing well from business perspective, you would always do well internally and you know, who would ever want to mess with success. So um, based on that experience, I you know, felt like, you know, I don't know about, I don't know about working for a big bank anymore. And um, we got to a point after a couple of years where it was clear that they were going to sell our business um, and or shut it down. And there was a lot of uncertainty associated with that. So I decided to start looking for another job. But I didn't want to go to a law firm based on my, my, law, my, my previous experience. And I didn't want to go to a bank based upon my current experience at the bank. So I thought, okay, let me talk to my hedge fund contacts, which I still had significant hedge fund contacts. And, you know, I could have worked at any number of places just a couple of years ago. Um, let me see how, how this works out. And what I quickly ran into was, you know, especially hedge funds being much smaller, was um, from a substantive perspective, yes, um, I presented the, um, a, a strong mix of skills and qualifications. But from an HR perspective, the now that I'd reached at that point, I was I was a seventh year. Oh, you're um, too senior. Yeah, like mm. where do you fit in? Yeah, that's right? a tough one. Yeah, so you know, look, obviously we you know we know you and we have a lot of respect for you, but you know, if I hire you, where would you fit in with me? Right. This is <gasps> oh, this would be wow. say like the general counsel or. I see. Um, you could I, be a threat. Yeah, or if I hire mm. you, where'd you fit in with the other with the deputy general counsel? Or the other seventh year who's here, right? What kind of message would that send them or her? So I found uh, over and over again that was an issue. And at the same time, the clock was ticking on us at, um, at the bank. And um, But more importantly, I was just really very, very just done with the whole sense of helplessness that I felt. Yeah, because um, you built up this amazing practice. You had all these kids, you went to Yale Law School, and then you're like, what is this? Right. I could potentially be out of job. <laughs> you know, like I could be out on the street tomorrow. Yeah. Um, you know, 
and 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 from a performance perspective, everything had been going great. That's right. And so it's like not fair. You know, you there's could yeah. do everything right, but still for it to not work. Yeah, out. and there's this real sense of like just helplessness and um you know, you need you need so many things to line up. That's right. Right. And so I was I was very troubled by all of that. Um and what what bothered me most was a sense of not being able to control my destiny, yeah. which um, I had assumed I had resolved a lot of those externalities, you know, as a result of going to law school or going to like, you know, like a Yale law school and or getting into like, you know, a good firm or you work at a good bank. And but ultimately, there's still so many things that are outside of your control. That's right. And. I eventually concluded, well, if things are going to be outside of my control, um, anyway, if, there's, if, if you're going to be subject to all of these uncertainties in life anyway, um, why don't I just totally go all in on uncertainty, control what I can, and then I'll just, you know, um, I'll just deal with the rest. And so um, I was interviewing for my last set of, of, of jobs, and I was running out of you know, gas in terms of how many of these I really wanted to go on. And um, I decided, you know, in the middle of one of our conversations, we got into this, so the whole, like, where do you fit in conversation? And thought, you know, why don't we think outside the box? You know, if I opened up my own firm, um, would you guys, instead of hiring me, you can hire me as outside counsel? And we can look at it as a part-time job. And you don't have to worry about my career path or how I fit in institutionally. You don't have to worry about um, how you're going to develop me. I'm going to come in to provide my expertise. You don't even have to keep me busy full-time um, if you don't have the work. But um, you know, if, I, if we do this, instead of me getting a job here, you know, can you at least give me a minimum amount of work? And then that we, we don't have to worry about you know, what you're going to call me or, 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 or you know, disrupting, ruffling any feathers. So um, the general counsel was, was intrigued by that idea. It's like, well, that's, that's an idea. That's interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to think about that. And so I put that out there to a couple of, of operations. And um, you know, at first I was thinking, well, if I can get two firms to sign up, I'll quit my job. And then I got to a point where I was like, you know what? If I can just get one person to sign up, I'm going to quit my job. <laughs> and then finally I was just like, you know, I'm going to quit my job. I, anyway, like I, I'd have, um, there were a number of us who were, because we were all in the same boat, uh, uh, given the amount of uncertainty around the business, where a number of my colleagues um, just decided to just quit anyway. And so I was like, you know what? Good for them. You know what? I'm going to do that too. Take, take control of my life back. Um, well, one day, um, I got an email back saying, you know, um, we'll do it. And uh, you know, we're happy to, to be your kind of first client. And, uh, and then later, and so I scheduled a meeting with my boss to, to give him the, the news that I was going to give notice. And then right before I went to go meet my boss, the, uh, the other firm I was talking to signed up. So I ended up meeting my, my two firm goal. Um, and you know, and these are both very household name hedge funds. Um, and after I gave notice, the bank signed up. 
And oh, in the, wow. Yeah. And in the, in the ultimate stroke of irony, the bank signed up to help so that I could help the bank sell the business. Interesting. <laughs> How ironic is that? Right, right. So they had not formally announced it, even though we all knew that it was going to happen. So um, you know, if they had formally announced it, they would have cut off my email and I would have been, my communications would have been quarantined and, and all that. Oh, yeah. But because I had, uh, they had not announced it, um, I, they engaged me to help them work on it. So I ended up basically doing my old job and then some uh, for the bank for another several years. And then, you know, and then have been doing outside counsel work for them. Um, wow. pretty consistently since wow um yeah so it's interesting that if it wasn't hard for you to find a job at that moment you would have never started your own firm no it was the last option wow right it was you know i i had gotten to that point once i had decided i'm ready to quit without a job wow right like i'm so tired of this sense of helplessness and lack of control over my life that, you know, I'm ready to quit without a job, in which case, you know, why not, why not start up my own firm? Right. You know, and then when you, when you think back, um, you know, and, and not many people had done it at that point. There, there are a lot more um, operations like ours now, but I, you know, I figured, you know, what are the worst case scenarios really? Right. Yeah. And um, none of them, quite honestly, from a intellectual and psychological, spiritual level, were worse than what I was going through at the bank. Yeah. You know, knowing, you know, doing all this work, not knowing that it would count for anything. Or, yeah, it's like demoralizing. Yeah, yeah. And and in fact, um, it's only when you're in that position where you've got, where you're equipped to do something. And you can do something, but you can't. Right. That you can really appreciate how, how debilitating that is. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, they would do this thing to us the last couple of years that I was there where while they were kind of making their internal reviews, we would get notices um, to halt, you know, activity on pending deals. Wow. And then there'd be this period of time where, you know, we'd have nothing to do for a few weeks. Oh my gosh. You know, and the suspense was just killing everybody. Yeah. It's like, right? oh, am I going to be fired today or tomorrow? Yeah. Or you know, and what? yeah, it, it would, and eventually a lot of people just felt like, you know, better to fire yourself. Right. Cause right. the constant, the suspense was worse than the consequences <laughs> of actually being fired. That's right. Right. Um, and so having experienced that really gave me a lot of perspective on the uncertainty mm. uh, associated with starting the firm. You know, there's, quite frankly, there's uncertainty in every, what I've come to appreciate is we encounter risk in every corner of our lives. Um, we are not taught how to manage risk very well growing up. We're never taught that. Yeah, like in fact, we're only taught to avoid risk. Of course. Right, but the, the issue with that is that presumes that there is a risk risky option and a less risky option. But the reality is there's risk in every option. Of course. And um, sometimes you're better off choosing a certain amount of risk than passively hoping that sitting tight 
um, <laughs> right. you know, will be truly less risky, right? That's right. You know, it, it's it's not unlike what people go through when there's like a hurricane or something, right? Like, do you evacuate or not, right? Or you see sometimes um, people who live near like a active volcano and they decide not to leave their homes and, you know. Um, there, there's a sort of illusion around sort of staying put that makes you feel like there's a comfort to it, that makes you feel like it's the safer bet. But in reality, when you when you've internalized that there's risk all around, of course, uh, and you're going to have to like lean into it, um, you know, it's more like when you're in the you know when you're jumping waves in the ocean. A lot of times, you're better off just like diving into the wave, yeah, right, than trying to fight the wave. Right, right. right. So um, what I've tried to do as I've matured and been through these risk experiences is I try to dive into the waves. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, especially a lot of lawyers, because I think we're inherently risk averse and that's why a lot of us go to law school um, and believe that, you know, staying at a law firm or working in house at a big company is more of a stable path, but that's not necessarily true. No, it isn't, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you were working, there are many, there are plenty of people who were working in, say, like the music business, right, or publishing. You know, businesses that are being tremendously disrupted um, and very quickly. Um, the signs are all there. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there's a point in time when you're in this really big office building and you're working for a company that's been around for a hundred years that you think it's going to last forever. But, you know, if you look at say the, the largest companies in the world and how long they've been where they are and the companies of say 10, 15, 20 years ago and where they are today, things are constantly in flux. Yeah. Right? Flux is, that's the natural state of life. Um, and the stability that we think that we're finding is really unnatural yeah. um, in many ways. So internalizing that, understanding that you, you have to make risk choices and then diving into the waves is really the better way to go, I think. So even though you felt really hopeless and it was not a really good time in your life, it in a way forced you to start your own firm yep. and it grew into this hugely successful firm. Um, so in a way, it was like a blessing in disguise. Absolutely. Yeah. And while you're doing that, you also started a media company for children. Yes. How did that come about? So um, my wife and I, we had uh, gone together while we were um, English teachers in Korea um, in college. And my wife ended up pursuing a degree in education and media and becoming a producer of instructional television shows. So these are shows that used to be, uh, used to be the case that when you went to school, they would wheel in a, a cart with a VCR on it and they would play a, a, a program for the classroom. And my wife used to make those types of programs. So she had a lot of experience in media. And after we got married, I encouraged her to continue to stick with media, independent media projects. She was looking for a job and sort of similar to me finding herself in this limbo where she was too experienced as a producer to get a, a, a serious production job in New York, but because she didn't have the contacts and was relatively young, um, was, was, was 
too senior to get the junior jobs. And then none of the senior jobs was appropriate for her. So, um, you know, and then I did the math and I was like, listen, the way these jobs are paying out, I think you're better off just um, doing contract work for, for others. And so she, she had done a lot of uh, real, like um, serious educational content um, when she was teaching and, and, and also as an educational producer. So she wrote textbooks and um, she produced a very successful textbook series and did uh, produced quite a number of successful audiobooks. And um, and I'm a I'm a I've always been a huge fan of of her of her work and and her talent and have always believed that her talent really really something that that needed to be really out there for the world. So um, I encouraged her. All right, since we're not going to go down the job path anyway, we're going to do the um, we're going to we're going to create stuff and we're going to have our own sort of production company where we uh, create content for other people. And we started out doing work for hire. And around that time, uh, after we've been doing, she'd been doing this for a couple of years and I was sort of advising on strategy and kind of helping sort of identify projects we could work on. We had a friend who uh, created a series of shorts, um, interstitials. So these are basically 60 second programs, like one minute long programs. And she was self-distributing them to PBS stations. And PBS uh, does not run commercials, but all the programs are cut um, to at a similar length as if you would run commercials because they're distributed internationally. And uh, in, in many other markets, they run commercials. And you'll notice that they run uh, in lieu of commercials around like public service announcements and that kind of thing, um, promos for other type of programming. So what we found with our, what our friend had done is she had produced a series of interstitials and um, she was part of the PBS world as, as my, my wife was. And she was able to reach out directly to station managers to get her shorts um, aired. And um, she was building up the brand. And I thought that was really interesting. I've gone to a couple of television conferences with my wife and I saw people working on these pitches and thinking that they were going to pitch television executives and get a deal. And I just thought that was the, this, that was very silly and extremely unlikely. So I was like, let's not do any of that. Here's what we'll do instead. Um, we'll take our life savings and we're going to like create our own show. Wow. Right. But um, we're going to do it. Not, we're not going to create like, we don't have enough money to like create like a big show. What we're going to do instead is we're going to, do what our friend did and um, we'll create a series of 60 second shorts. You know, you know, all the same people that, that she's calling up and she can help us, you know, um, distribute this to PBS stations. And that effectively gets us to most of the country. And if it's any good, then we'll build up an audience. And then what we can do is we can go to a television conference then and pitch a show on the basis of having distributed this, um, successful set of shorts that have demonstrated there's an audience and then we can create a show then on that basis. So that was the plan. And at the time, being former ESL teachers, this was a time when nursery rhymes were falling um, out of institutional memories. So they were not being taught in schools anymore. And there was a lot of concern in the educational community about the loss of nursery rhymes and the cultural language and 
They're important for language acquisition. And so we decided we're going to focus on nursery rhymes. We're going to, you know, reintroduce that to society and keep that top of mind and, and, you know, give out kids an opportunity to be exposed to them on television because there was no programming that introduced kids to nursery rhymes on video at all. So we innovated um, a nursery, the nursery rhyme video format. And we created a show called Mother Goose Club. And so um, we, we filmed and designed the whole show with broadcast television in mind, really spent a lot of money on design and, and, and look and feel, um, primarily so that we could eventually impress um, potential broadcasters on our capabilities and on how the show would look if we did it for real. So the vision was, we'll do this, and when we actually we get anywhere, then we'll do the show for real when, when we get the, the broadcast television. These deal. are just like examples. Yeah. And so we filmed the, the, the spots. We started self-distributing them to um, PBS contacts and set up a website. And uh, I was, we started attending the television conferences again to tell people what we were up to. And in those days, you needed to burn a DVD and mail it to someone in order to share video. That's right. But then in the mid-2000s, which this was all going down, um, YouTube was invented. And we, I decided to use YouTube instead of burning DVDs and FedExing them to people. Just um, so it's easy to send the link, Yeah, right? like you could send them a link. <laughs> but uh, nobody was really using it back then. Yeah, yeah. It was. I, I thought of it as free cloud storage. <laughs> And a way to save, quite honestly, like 20 bucks. Right, right? right. You know, like, hey, instead of FedExing stuff, we'll just send them an email instead. And then there's a view count counter. And if they watch it, then I, then the view count will go up. I see. So right? you'll know, oh, one person watched yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if it goes up from two to three, then somebody watched it. So, right. you know, and I, I'm not emailing everybody. So, like, I'll know who watched it. Right. So that was the, that was the thought process. So we put the videos up on YouTube. Um, we emailed people, we went to the television conferences and we pretty much forgot about YouTube and used it for that purpose for another couple of years. And by 2010, we had enough content, um, finished where we were able to market a DVD and we've been doing this now for, um, almost five years, um, including sort of all the prep work and all that. And so we've been, you know, expending significant resources on this thing for five plus years and had not actually monetized anything. Yeah. But now that we had a D enough content to market a DVD or put together a DVD, this is our one chance to actually start making some money back. So I was like, all right, let me see who we can sell the DVD to. So I heard by you had a goal by the end of 2010, if you don't make hundred dollars you'll shut it down because yeah. you already spent too much money on this yeah so we, we'd spent hundreds <laughs> of thousands of dollars you know our entire life savings have been wow. going into this year after year not made a single dollar never made a single dollar <laughs> and and in many ways we're opposed to monetizing kids content ah. right so it was one of the reasons why you know it was a you know and youtube was not monetized in those days that's right so we um but i i I needed to at least know if we could sell $100 with the DVDs mm. or something. Right. Right. So we had a, like a meeting um, in the fourth quarter of 2010 
I wrote one hundred dollars on the board. Wow! And I was like, if we cannot sell one hundred, <laughs> we cannot generate one hundred dollars of revenue by the end of this year, given how long we've been out there, and now that we're about to, you know, now we're selling DVDs. Uh, then I, I don't know that we should keep doing this because I don't know if anyone even likes this stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, we're getting some traffic to our website, but um, what does that even mean? And you know, we're getting some fan mail, but I mean, like, how many people is this? Like, you know, and there's no information, right? right. Um, especially for interstitials, the, the 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 television rating agencies don't don't track that. But right around that time. I we had a an, like an assistant who managed all of our online accounts for us, and he went on to graduate school, and so I took over the accounts. While this is now in the, the late summer of 2010, uh, I was on vacation. I decided to log into some of these accounts while I was on vacation because he was leaving, and you know, as part of the transition process. So, and I looked in, into our accounts, uh, in particular our YouTube account. And I was thinking, well, maybe I can get some of these guys to buy a DVD. And I noticed that there was a lot of traffic similar to our website. And we had never really been promoting or telling people about our YouTube channel. And I wasn't convinced that little kids were watching YouTube. Or it never even occurred to me that they would actually watch <laughs> right, YouTube. Right, who does that? <laughs> right, yeah, because you, know, you have to keep in mind this is pre-mobile. Right, right. right? You know, you're going to sit with the baby. Like, you can turn on TV, right? Like, yeah, there's yeah. like, you know, there's all this free TV. Why would you do this? So... Um, I saw that there was more traffic than I would have expected. And then I, I started diving into the data. And being in the uh, derivative space in my legal practice, um, you know, I encounter data on a pretty regular basis. Um, not necessarily this type of data, but data of a certain kind. So uh, I wasn't, you know, for, I was, you know, it wasn't unfamiliar to me to look at the data. And right away, you could see opportunity. And this was at a time when YouTube uh, channels were not being professionally managed. Right. So I spent quite a bit of time researching, like, what are you supposed to do to build out a YouTube business? What are you supposed to, like, what are the steps and what do people do? Or, and, you know, read some articles and profiles of successful YouTubers. And what I realized after a few months was there's nothing out there. And if, you know, the, the, the playbook on how this, how someone's going to build a successful YouTube channel, it's not out there because no one's written it yet. And if anyone's going to write that, it, it's going to be us. So kind of like how when in your law practice, you had to figure it out and made it all up. Yes. <laughs> so you're doing the same thing all over again. Yes. And so um, that later that summer, like that, that fall, I signed up for a, a Google search um, conference uh, so I could get some training on SEO and YouTube was had been purchased by uh, Google not too long not to you know a couple of years previously but they didn't fully integrated them yet so knowing that that was coming I thought well maybe it'd be helpful to learn a little bit about SEO and and that was helpful and so um, we then began to systematically optimize the channels um, really in a way that no one else had done previously and we really started releasing a lot of new content and engaging with people um, in a way that channels were not doing and our channels really started to grow yeah and 
you know, and I'm something of a skeptic, you know, being a lawyer. So I needed to really research this for a while. And I spent another six and a half plus months after that, you know, keeping an eye and running all these experiments and researching and ultimately concluding, yes, kids are watching YouTube. And by 2011, by the, by the end of 2011, we were all in on YouTube and we decided, you know what, we're going to abandon the original plan. Um, we're going to stick with this. Not going to sell DVDs anymore. Yeah, we're not going to sell DVDs. <laughs> we're going to try to get a broadcast television deal. We're going to see where we can take this. And um, I heard that you started seeing like a weird ad for your videos on YouTube. Yes. So one of the things that happened early on in this experience was um, when YouTube first started taking advertising, uh, and keeping in mind it wasn't monetized until sort of uh, for, for many channels until 2012, and we didn't turn on advertising even until for a while. Um, there were, people started putting up all kinds of random ads. And in the first couple of years that ads were running on YouTube, you could put up an ad, and since there was no ad inventory on YouTube, YouTube would just leave the ad up, right? And so one of the things I noticed on our videos was there was an ad for this featuring this one exorcism video. <laughs> what? Right. And you know, and, and we got kids We're content. Like little kids videos. Yeah. yeah. And the thumbnail, the the image was this uh sort of was 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 a lady who was going through who was supposedly demon possessed. Oh man. And so sort of imagine kind of a a picture from the exorcist. And like that's staring at me every time I open up my, my, my channel on YouTube. Right? That's scary. So I go to watch one of my videos and I see this ad. And I, I'm seeing it everywhere. And I saw it everywhere for like weeks. Oh, wow. So I was really annoyed. <clears throat> and there was no way to not see it. Yeah. And, and so I decided to start advertising You're to see if I could get rid of it. <laughs> Right. Like, so how much would it cost me to advertise um, so that I wouldn't have to see this ad? So you create an ad for your own videos. Yeah. Right. So I created <laughs> just to get rid of that. Yeah. Just to get rid of that, that exorcism ad. <laughs> and I, I started playing around with the ad, um, with the, with the ad spend. And in those days you could run an experiment. There was so little activity relatively to today on YouTube or, you could run an experiment and you would see the results immediately. And it was a very clean environment where you could actually run multiple experiments and conduct them side by side without, with very little noise. And I spent a couple of weeks tweaking various levels and, and strategies for my ad until I was able to get that ad off. Wow. <clears throat> and um, the return was phenomenal on our in terms of channel impact much more than i ever would have expected wow but you would have never put up the ad if there was no exorcism ad at the first place yeah like if like if there if i'd seen some sort of like nickelodeon ad or something yeah yeah i would have been like left. awesome yeah, like nickelodeon's like advertising against our videos right, right right like instead i was just like what in the hell right <laughs> what is this exorcism ad doing and like and if it had gone away yeah um i would have probably not thought twice about it oh, wow but it was there every day, every time. And it was really annoying. <laughs> and I really wanted to get rid of it. And so I, and, 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 and then it was a bit of a challenge because 
once I started advertising, I couldn't get rid of it right away. Mm. So um, it, it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it took a while. And again, we were not monetized at that point. Um, but, you know, and there was a fair amount of spend, but the traffic impact was, you know, substantial. Right? Wow, from and, the ad. Yeah. And um, the learnings from that were even more substantial. So um, what we ended up doing um, eventually, uh, somewhat unbeknownst to ourselves, was we sort of paved the way. We were part of the first group of channels to really create the and define the kids space on YouTube. Yeah. And I heard um, somebody from YouTube flew out to interview you because you were apparently one of the big YouTubers in the East Coast. Right. Well, so <laughs> they were from the New York office, but they, um, it was very surreal, right? So, yeah. so at a time when we were running these experiments and all of the media attention on YouTubers were people not like us. And, you know, there was very little visibility in those days to YouTube data. Um, so no one had any idea how big anybody was or how many views they were getting or what was doing well, or what wasn't doing well, nothing like today. And so, um, and we didn't really think that we were doing all that well. Like, um, it was just really hard to tell, right? So, um, but I, I got a call um, asking if, you know, from, from someone saying they were from YouTube and they wanted to come to our office, ask us some questions, which we thought was very, very strange. Like, first of all, like, why would you ask us? Right. <laughs> right. And, like, like, what do you mean you're going to come to our office? And like, huh? Like, and, and, and we had never been contacted by anyone from YouTube before, before that point. Like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, you know, we're making some changes or we're considering some changes to the interface and the platform. And you guys are, you know, basically the biggest YouTubers in New York City. So we, we want to see what you think about these format changes. I thought that was very strange. Right. <laughs> I thought that was really strange. So I was like, sure, why not? Why don't you come over? So um, I had this very surreal day um, where they came over to then meet for like an hour and a half to look at wireframes for the new format that they were considering. Um, and then, of course, you know, I had some questions for him and he didn't really answer them in any detailed way. But, <laughs> you know, that, that, was, that was a real moment for us in terms of getting a sense of like, like, you know, maybe this is like a real thing and... This is this looks like this might actually go someplace, mm. right? Um, and you know, and then that that really helped us later on that year really lean into just going all in on on digital. Wow! And now Sakai Media has grown into a hugely successful media company with four Mid South Emmy Awards, millions of subscribers, and billions of views on YouTube, broadcast on PBS stations nationwide. And your law firm is doing really well too. So it's hard enough running one business successfully, but how do you do two simultaneously at the same time? You know, I, I'm a very good process manager. Um, but so I, I you know, I'm, I'm a real believer in empowering the team and everyone on the team really operates very independently um, so it, it's not so dependent on me the way that one might think. Um, I think from a strategic standpoint, like op that's operationally, but st strategically, you know, I, I really look at this all as an adventure and I, I'm not seeking to 
define a very specific path and follow only that path. Um, I really like, quite honestly, I trust in God and the path that he's laid out for me. And um, I, I embrace not knowing what tomorrow brings, um, good or bad. I mean, we've had our ups and downs. Um, you know, there's a lot to be learned from things not going well. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not afraid of it and I don't seek to avoid it. And when things don't do well, we really try to make the most out of it. And then, you know, in many ways, what I found actually is that sometimes the worst possible thing that can happen to you is if things go too well. If you have success that you don't know how to really manage, uh, um, either financially or emotionally. Have you seen examples like that around you? Oh, yeah. Like, um, I mean, even within our story, there have been times when we gave ourselves a little too much credit for things that went well. I see. Or um, you make decisions. You know, so one thing about, especially I would say on, on the media side, when you're, when you're making money and you're reinvesting it into creative projects, you know, when you first start out, not having resources is a constraint, but at the same time, because you're spending more time on things, you're thinking really much more about just the pure content. That's right. Right. Like, how do I get this right? You know, what, what, what do people really want and what do they need and what is my voice and how do I best serve them and, and how do I really offer them something that's, that's meaningful and valuable with to the best of my resources? And there are times when things are going well and you have all these resources that you start making sloppy content decisions, uh. right? You know, like this worked before, so I'll do that. You start getting I lazy. See. When other things go well. Yeah, other people are doing this and I got to do something, so I'll just do what they're doing, right? And, you know, casually, to the casual observer, it looks very much similar to what you had done previously. Um, substantively, maybe almost in, you know, um, impossible to discern the differences. But from a creative standpoint, it's coming from a very different place. I see. And ultimately, it's not the best way to make contact. And it will catch up to you. Wow. Right? So um, you, and, and, and you see this, you, this is, the, you know, these are like the, the terrible like sequels that sometimes you see where like the yeah. third movie that should never have been made. <laughs> right, right? right. You know, like it's that kind of thing. Right. Mm. And, you know, obviously we don't operate at that scale, but I, as a creator, I, I, there've been times when we've, you know, lost, not lost focus, but, you know, not applied the same level of focus, you know, when you don't have as many resources that there's a real upside to that. And that, you know, it gives you more quiet space to really think about like, you know, how do I make the best use of this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and our industry is very volatile. So you find yourself sometimes, you know, with a lot more, you know, production capacity than, than you know what to do with. And then sometimes you find yourself resource constrained. You know, the challenge is to, to balance that out long-term while staying true to a vision that serves the audience and, and speaks to your, your ultimate creative goals. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's something that we're always striving to stay conscious of and 
on top of as, as, as educators and creators. So how do you do that? How do you stay grounded and not lose that, that focus or the, you know, staying true to the vision? Because I'm sure when you're growing really fast and doing well and financially successful, everyone thinks you're great. Like it's easy to lose that. It absolutely is. Yeah. And I see, I've seen a lot of people who kind of, you know, after a while, they, yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. You know, I, th I think having, uh, I guess one good thing about having uh, such a diverse array of activities, there's always something that's not going well. Yeah. Right. And, you know, Sana and I have really come to embrace the stuff that's not going well. Mm. Right. I, I would say that we really, we, you know, especially in the last couple of years, we really come to value that. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, there have been all kinds of challenges that we've had to deal with. You know, like we're raising four kids. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I would say that the last, I mean, the sum total of where we are right now is, you can't really control your know, life, but I ultimately I don't know that you'd want to, and I don't think life would be as interesting if you could. Mm. Um, what you can control is knowing what your values are and um, and for us, and especially in the last few years, really um, we've rediscovered our faith and are focusing on, on living lives that are meaningful for us, um, not materially, but spiritually. And, and that we're serving, not just, you know, um, others, not just in word, but in deed. So we're, we're, we're becoming much more active socially and um, trying to take more responsibility and, and putting ourselves out there more. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, valuing and maintaining relationships and, and investing in relationships is really, you know, what life is about. And so we're, we're spending a lot of time on that as well. Yeah. I mean, from the outside, I'm sure people are looking at you, um, it, sounds like you've had a pretty successful actually really successful amazing life but i'm sure it wasn't smooth sailing for you all the time so when was the most difficult time for you you know i would say professionally the most difficult time was the the period of i would say the six months before i left the bank i see um you know on a personal level there have been there have been moments when we were incredibly successful financially from a business perspective and utterly um, you know looking for guidance at, on, a, on a spiritual level um, you know working through you know sort of personal existential questions to dealing with family challenges and um, I would say that the, the good thing about that is, it's it's it is helpful. I would say the best thing about achieving a certain level of success. Obviously, you know, it's nice to be comfortable and all that. But you know, it's good to know. I mean, people say like you know, money doesn't bring happiness. It's actually kind of good to actually get a certain amount of money and realize it doesn't bring happiness because then oh wow yeah because then like it kind of you puts know your, it right? <laughs> then you know it right. Um, and and at the same time, it's it's good to know that happiness brings happiness, right? Uh, you know, like. Right. Um, you know, but honestly, you're not going to know that unless you had to deal with some tough things. So, you know, we've we've had various kinds of health scares at oh, wow. different times. Um, we've had to deal with 
um, you know, pretty difficult challenges in terms of, you know, managing various family challenges. But, yeah. you know, um, I would say our, our takeaway from all of those has been um, the each one of those is an opportunity for us to rely more on each other as a family, um, to reach out for help more, um, to be less isolated and to, um, to seek our community more. Um, you know, I used to do this thing where I travel a fair amount. I used to stay at hotels a lot. And, you know, for a while I was looking to stay at like, you know, let me just say at all the best hotels in this area or in this one town, or I'll like get a certain like status level at this one hotel and rack up the free stuff. Um, but in recent years, what we've been trying to do as we go around is we will, if we have friends in the area, we'll stay with them. Oh. You know, whatever the conditions are. Wow. Yeah. You know, if they'll have us, we'll stay with them. And, you know, what I found is that extra couple of hours late at night, like I got back from doing whatever I'm doing or they get back from whatever doing they, they were doing. Or that, you know, 30 minute breakfast the next day um, provides an opportunity. And then I guess I'm mature enough now and old enough now to know that you can't take for granted that that opportunity will always be there for you to have that moment. Wow, right? that's so true. So um, we've really come to value those moments. And, you know, I would say um, really seek out you know everybody needs help with stuff and so we seek it out yeah and then we try to provide as much help as we can um whenever we can um you know and and trying to divorce ourselves from the the you do you i do me mindset that a lot of us live in yeah 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 so i think trying to move more to a, a culture um where you know even because even with within family a lot of times you know like you're doing well, I'm doing well. So let's, you know, like, you know, I'm going to stay over your place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stay over your place. I'm going to be around for breakfast, you know. You Talk know. to me. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be here. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, yeah. and then, you know, and then you stay over my place. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, and, or I'm going to impose on you and you impose on me and yeah. let's, let's impose on each other. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then that, that little bit of imposition then leads someone to say, listen, you know, this other person that we know could use help with this thing. They might have said something to you. So then, you know, of course, we'll jump into that. And then, you know, and then we've had opportunity to then reach out to other people for help and then they help us out. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, more than the actual thing that we might have done together having that dialogue and more of that interaction, like more like when we were kids, like, yeah, yeah. Um, is, and rediscovering that way of life in the last, especially in the last few years for us has been fantastic. And I, you know, I'm, I would say we're hoping to do more of that. Yeah. How's that like working with your wife? You two grew together, not only a very successful company, but you raised four children. Yes. <laughs> How do you do that? Um, it's, it's great. You know, we never have to tell each other what, what we did every day. Right. Um, you know, we have a really good time. We, I would say we don't really take any of it all that seriously, quite honestly. Mm. Um, we're, you know, we take it as it comes and 
we have an opportunity. You know, it's one of the best things about it is that you always have someone you can laugh with about some of the ridiculous stuff you run across, and mm. um, you always have someone who knows the references that you're thinking about, and um, and at the same time, you know, having you know a companion and a friend um, that you can enjoy all these different challenges with and experiences with and learn from each other. It's, it's been great. So you've had a very successful career. Um, what have you learned about success that you can share with us? I would say, you know, we very much define success in financial terms. We define success on a sort of pedigree basis. But one thing I would encourage us to think about is defining success on an experience basis, oh. right? You know, if we were to map out what many people would have thought when we were growing up was a successful life of, you know, you go to this school and then you get this job and you work there for this number of years, living in this type of place, doing this type of thing every day, you know, racking up this type of bank account and this type of car, wearing these types of clothes, doing these types of weekend activities, like it all very, very predictable. Right. Right. Um, I think if you had asked, you know, any one of us to, to write it out, you know, we'd all come back with a description that was, you know, 99%, you know, in line. That's a horrible way to live. So like, nobody's going to make a movie about that type of life. Right. Right. Like, That's right. Yeah. Like if you, I wouldn't interview that kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> right. There, you know, there's no suspense there. It's, it's, there's no drama there. Right. Um, I, you see these movies, um, like, you know, I recently had a chance to, to um, see the Harry Potter movies again with, with my kids. And what's very exciting and wonderful about those movies is this is a group of friends that are experiencing a series of adventures together. Yeah. Right. And ideally you'd want to have a life where you're experiencing adventures. Yeah. Right. You know, you and your friends are out there experiencing adventures together. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. The challenges keep it interesting, but it's adventure after adventure, and um, and that's that's a really great way to live. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I would only add to that. It's important for us to fundamentally know what we're living for and to have a set of values and beliefs that um, allow you to make sense of it all. And once you have, you know, something to live for and, and you're living a life full of adventures where you're focused on you know, hopefully serving others other than yourself and, and being part of and contributing to a, a wider community, um, uh, you know, I, I think you will find that there's so much you can experience and add and see and do and, and that life is great. Yeah. What would you want to say to your younger self? Um, I would tell my younger self, you know, just relax. <laughs> <laughs> it's all going to be okay. It's all good. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> so we all know no one succeeds alone and no one achieves dreams alone. So who helped you to get to where you are now? Oh, so many people. Um, I mean, of course, you have to first think about your parents. Of course, yeah. Um, 
you know, the great thing about my parents, because we get each other now, right? I used to think my parents were much more materialistic or, you know, because when, you know, when you grow up always hearing that you need to go to like an Ivy League school or get a certain type of job, you're thinking, um, oh, my parents must be very materialistic. But really what they wanted for me was they wanted me to have like a happy family. Yeah. Right? But they didn't know how to say, I want you to grow up and have a happy family. <laughs> <laughs> so they all so everybody just told their kids to go to harvard yeah right <laughs> somehow that will lead you to have a happy family right 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 instead of just saying you know go have a happy family right <laughs> um and what i've i've really come to appreciate because my parents have had this whole epic journey after retirement wow that i never would have imagined what did they do you know so they they worked in a dry they say that we had that candy store yeah. and in Spanish Harlem for a number of years during like the mid seventies when it was very tough place. And then, and then they had a dry cleaners in Queens um, for almost 30 years. And um, that dry cleaners really kind of in many ways defined our whole lives and how I saw life and how I saw their lives. And I always envisioned, you know, I didn't, I couldn't imagine a life without the dry cleaner and, I thought that without the dry cleaner, because all they'd done for my entire life was just be at this dry cleaner. And what would they possibly do when they're, when they're out? And I was worried about that. And um, after retirement, they've, um, you know, they, I, I bought them a computer <laughs> so that they could surf Korean news on the internet. Oh, that's right? a nice son. <laughs> yeah. So I, was, so I was like, you know, like instead of getting all these newspapers, you know, why don't you just get this computer and you can like read all the news on the computer. So I got on a computer and then they decided, well, you know, we need to learn how to use this computer. So we're going to go to a computer class. Wow. So they um, um, arranged with some other seniors at, this, at the senior center to arrange for a computer class. And they've been basically going to a computer class now for over 10 years. <laughs> wow. And the computer class is now morphed into this whole digital photo video thing. Wow. They got really into digital photography they make their own videos, right? They'll like, you know, so they're taking all these photos. So, so they have this photo video club. They travel all around the world taking photos and videos of stuff. That's you know, so putting cool. like really cheesy soundtracks to it and then emailing it to everybody <laughs> or like taking a video of a photo and then photoshopping all these like flowers. and like They know how to photoshop too? Oh, yeah. And they'll put wow. like some, some like, you know, inspirational saying into it. That, oh, like, my parents always <laughs> send me those. Yeah. Maybe your parents made some and my they parents went viral. Make, yeah, they make a lot of that stuff, right? <laughs> so I'm getting that like nonstop. And they like they do like- a, I get a lot of those. Yeah, yeah. So, so they make that stuff, right? Like wow. they and the other seniors in the photo video club. Um, so oh, I've gone on trips with the photo video club. where those came from. <laughs> right. You know, um, they, uh, they, had, they just recently had an ex exhibit of their work. That's um, the wow, photo video club. They, they do exhibits like every few months in Flushing, and um, and they have this incredibly active, rich life that has been so much fun. And I think, is in many ways, it's, it's this whole entire chapter of their lives that yeah. they began when they were in their late sixties, early seventies. Yeah. Um, so who knows what the future brings, wow. right? Like you know, um, like you don't want to know how it's going to turn out. So my last question to you is, um, what would you want to say to people who are trying to figure it all out and then want to one day pursue their dreams? You know, I would say the most important, don't look at things in terms of 
milestones to hit. Yeah. Milestones or Which milestones. A lot of us do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, take a step back. Think about. Think about what you're about. Think about your values. And. And 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 look out for experiences that live out those values. Yeah. Right. And the, the milestones will. Will take care of themselves. Um, you know, there was a point in time. I would say a key defining moment for us as a family. Um, not too long after we had our first child, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. Oh wow! And um, there was this you know period of time when you get after you get a cancer diagnosis, when you don't know what what the outcome is going to be. And the thing that really struck um, us as a family was was not so much the sense, the possibility that life might end so quickly. But it really hit home to me um, how much life there was left. Wow! Right. So at the time, I was still in my in my um, in my late twenties, and I was looking forward to the possibility that I might have to live with the consequences of that diagnosis for the next possibly sixty years. Right. Right. Yeah. This is a long time. That's a long time. And up until that point, like a lot of us, I'd been sort of looking sort of forward to the next, um, you know, what's the thing I should do to maximize my next opportunity? What's the thing I should do to take advantage of the next whatever? Or we're like, what's the next wrong on the ladder kind of thing? And when I realized that, you know, there's a lot of time left. And, and this is like, you know, when I talk to people about careers, you know, even now, like if you were like my, my parents immigrated when they were, uh, my dad immigrated when he was 40. Um, and he's lived an entire lifetime and had an entire lifetime of experiences in, in, in America um, that he completely started from scratch when yeah. he was 40. Right. right? Um, life is long. Yeah. So um, a lot of what we think about in terms of you have to hit these milestones by a certain point in time. You have to do this by a certain point in time. That's just not true. Yeah. Right. Um, the thing you really should be worried about is, you know, given how long life is, um, are you really happy with just doing things X way and, and never trying Y way? Right. Just right? because that's how everybody else does it. Right. You know, and are you really okay with that for like the rest of, you know, the rest of the next however many years, right. 80 years. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think of life more now like, you know, you go to the amusement park and there's a big map and there's a whole list of rides, right? And are you going to be the type of person that goes to try to ride every ride? Or are you going to be the type of person that basically, depending on what exit you showed up in, you're going to just follow like, you know, where everyone else is online and just do those, yeah. right? Um, I think... Things are much better when you kind of have a, you know, kind of, you're open to like the full set of experiences and, you know, and you just put yourself out there, right? So that's how I've been trying to live. And very often you'll find with people, especially as they get sort of closer to middle age, like I am now, you know, they get to, they find themselves in a destination, but they've arrived at a destination that they didn't want to be in. Right. Um, 
But before they put themselves on that path, it didn't occur to them to ask if they really wanted to get there. Yeah. Right. Um, and then once they get there, like seized with regret, right? So especially like lawyers, there's so many lawyers who regret being lawyers. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen many. <laughs> <laughs> you may know some. Um, Just a few. <laughs> right. Because believe it or not, I've actually found that most people do end up where they intend to go. Yeah. Right. Um, like if they really, really needed to get to a certain like threshold or status, they will end up there. Yeah. Um, but whether or not that will be what they wanted right. is a different question. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is a question that not enough people are asking themselves or thinking hard enough about. I think it's interesting how your life kind of, it was a series of random incidents right. or accidents right. or punctuated things. by, you know, serious, like <laughs> serious things, seriously not working out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then. Um, you know, if we had if we had been able to get a television deal, yeah, there'd be no Mother Goose Club, right? Absolutely. Yeah. If yeah. there, if we had been, you know, if I'd been able to, if, <laughs> if the people at the firm had embraced the fact that a, you know, third year associate was like running a practice group, right. then you know, I wouldn't have my own firm, That's right? That's right. Um, you know, if I'd been able to get a business side job or decided to join some startup that worked out, then you know, so you know, there's so many different paths, right? Um, but really don't focus on that stuff. Like focus on what kind of person you are and what kind of people you surround yourself with. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Harry, so much for sharing your story with my listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, I would really appreciate it if you can subscribe and write a review for the podcast. It really helps me to spread the word. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, please let me know where you're listening from and what you think about the show. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching, I would be happy to answer any questions you may have. Please send me a message on my website, selinalee.co, that is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E.co, and leave me a message there. So thank you again, and I'll be back soon with another episode.